to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I am today's host, Charles Peterson, and I'm sitting here with my two rickly, rickliest co-hosts, Dr. Lee <laughs> Johnson and Dr. Richard Rickley Lee. I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just roll with it. Today, we're going to be talking about lies, damn lies, and statistics. Hat tip to Mark Twain. So let's get started. Rick, what do you have in the drink, and what's your rant, or what's your rave? I'm going to go back to one of my standbys. I'm going to have a French 75. Today, I am raving about the jazz vocalist Marion Montgomery. I've been listening to a lot of her lately. She's from Natchez, and she had a remarkable voice. So Marion Montgomery, hats off to you. All right, Lee, what's your rant or your rave, and what are you drinking? So it's summertime. I'm going to move into frozen margarita season, so I will have a frozen margarita. And today I am ranting about thoughts and prayers. I am tired, tired, tired of people sending thoughts and prayers every time an entirely predictable and preventable tragedy happens. I'm going to play something, though, that I found on TikTok by Max the Very Good Boy that captures exactly what I'm talking about. Are you in a position of power? Yeah. And terrible things are happening? Oh, yeah. Introducing thoughts and prayers. What's that? Thoughts and prayers is a cute little phrase that people in power can use to pretend like they're helping when they're really doing nothing. Whoa, how does it work? It's simple. Join the Senate, wait for an avoidable tragedy, and tweet out thoughts and prayers. Is it effective? Nothing could possibly be less effective. I'm going to do it anyway. When I joined the Senate, I thought I was going to have to make hard decisions and personal sacrifices, but it turns out I don't have to do any of that. I can say thoughts and prayers and everything will get fixed. Try it today. That pretty much captures it. Yeah, that guy's got an outstanding political career ahead of him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, Charles, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to have something completely inappropriate for the season. I'm going to have a stout. That's normally a winter drinkable for me, but uh, what the hell? I'm going to be a little daffy, so I will have a nice stout. Thank you, Noel. My rave is the kids in the hall. One of my favorite comedic troops of the 1990s. The Kids in the Hall had a great HBO series, and it's been revived on Amazon Prime. Call us big streaming. And <laughs> the best way to put it is to take from the New York Times review title, which is The Kids in the Hall Have Grown Older, But Their Comedy Has Not. It is still as transgressive. It is still as uproarious. It is still as delightful and clever as ever. I laughed out loud for the first time in months. So check it out. It's worth every bit of giving money to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> All right. So our hot seat occupant today is Lee. And Lee will be guiding us through a discussion of lies, damn lies, and statistics. Hat tip to Mark Twain. So, Lee, how do you want to start this conversation? Well, you know, Charles, we're currently living, or so it's been reported, in a period where capital T truth is either widely contested or constantly under assault. 
And honestly, it just seems like a lot of people have given up caring about the lies that they are told. And look, there are good reasons to mistrust not only other people, but the press, political representatives, religious leaders, so-called nonpartisan entities like the CDC, scientists, and now with deepfakes, even your own eyes and ears. But I don't think all lies are the same. And as philosophers, we in particular ought to be interested in parsing the differences between various types of untruth. So we're going to split this episode into three sections. In the first section, we're going to talk about lies. What are they? What are the moral implications of lying? Do lies necessarily involve the intention to deceive, et cetera, et cetera? And in the second section, we're going to talk about damned lies. So what are the most harmful kind of lies and why are they harmful? And then in the third section, we're going to talk about statistics. 90% of Lee's episodes are divided into three sections with cute titles. <laughs> and 65% of our listeners support that. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to take a stab at outleeing Lee, and I want to get a foundational definition on the table. So it seems to me if we're going to talk about lies, can we have a rough, broad definition of what we consider to be lies? I mean, nicely done, Charles. I mean, how does that definition <laughs> feel on you? <laughs> it looks good on you. <laughs> I feel renovated. I just saw the cockles of Lee's cockles get all warm. Yes, they did. <laughs> all right. So I think that a basic definition of a lie is to say something that you know is not true with the intention of deceiving. And I think the intention part is important. So if I were to tell you something that is untrue, but I believe it to be true, I think that's a mistake, right? I sometimes say to my students, you know, when your biology professor is grading your exams and you get a few questions wrong, it's not like he's saying, liar, 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 you know? So, so I think that the intention to deceive is really important there. But I also think that it might have to involve something that you at least believe can be true or false. So the belief that truth is available about this thing. Yes, correct. Right. The problem is then we fall into a bit of George Costanza territory here <laughs> because George Costanza says it's not a lie if you believe it. And I think that's a problem with putting so much emphasis on intentionality in relation to lying. But I believe it's not a lie if you believe it's true. That, that, to me, is the same example as the example of getting a question wrong on an exam. When I write it down, the wrong answer, when I say something untrue, I'm not intending to deceive you. I believe it's the right answer, the true answer. In order to understand something as a lie, we have to accept that either A, there is an objective truth that can be established, or B, it's really all about someone's commitment to believing that something is objectively true. It, well, here's where it gets a little iffy for me, because I don't necessarily think that it has to be objectively true or even that you believe that it's objectively true. So, for example, if I were to say Taylor Swift is the greatest country singer of all time. Now, I know that that is false, and I, be I believe that that is false. And when I say that, I'm intending to deceive you about my beliefs about what is true and false. But I don't think that I would go so far as to say that there is an objective truth about the greatest singer of all time. Thank you for losing all of our Taylor Swift listeners. 
Well Bye. done. <laughs> and our big Taylor Swift sponsorship I've been working on. <laughs> so can we begin to talk about the role of opinion? An opinion as separate from an objective truth. Yeah, so I think that I can lie about even my opinions. I think that Taylor Swift example is a perfect example where if you asked me who is the greatest country singer of all time and I said Taylor Swift because... I don't know, you're a huge Taylor Swift fan or you work for Taylor Swift and I thought we might get a podcast sponsorship out of it. <laughs> Maybe I say that, but I'm, I'm intending to deceive you in that. I know the difference between the truth and the lie, in this case, about my own aesthetic judgment. So I don't think it has to be objectively true, but it does seem to me that the person lying, the person intending to deceive has to know the difference between the truth and the untruth. So basically a lie is a statement, a belief, or can we extend it to action that is in conflict with an opinion, a fact that one believes to be the opposite of what one is now stating as the lie? Well, okay. Phenomenologically, this is how I would describe what happens when I lie to someone. I have the truth and you want to know the truth. So you ask me, what is the truth? And instead of giving you the truth, I give you a lie that in effect serves as a veil between you who wants to know the truth and the truth that I know. And so you take the lie to be the truth. That's what I think phenomenologically happens in a lie. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be a statement. I think that we can lie with our affects and actions as well. But what is necessary for the intention to deceive to occur is that I know the difference between the truth and the lie that's veiling it. This is an issue that I've heard reporters and editors from the New York Times talk about in relation to Donald Trump when he was president, because they were confronted with this on a daily basis <laughs> about whether to call what Donald Trump said a lie or not a lie. And they settled on this idea of intention, that if they could show that there was an intention that he lied, then they would say he lied. Otherwise, they would say things like he misstated the facts, he misspoke, you know, something like that. But when I heard some discussions from some really smart reporters and editors, the problem they were pointing to is that what's worse than Donald Trump lying is his complete destruction of truth as a value to begin with. Mm -hmm. Once you can destroy truth as a value, then you can't call someone a liar because there is no truth that I'm now, as you said, Lee, veiling you from. And so in a way, maybe the biggest lie, the, the lie that starts all lies is there is no truth or the truth is undiscoverable. That reminds me, I don't know if either one of you remember this book, Harry Frankfurt's book on bullshit. Yeah. Number one best-selling philosophy book, early 2000s. And an interesting point that he makes in terms of the difference between a liar and a bullshitter, a bullshitter doesn't care about the truth, right? Doesn't matter. They'll just say whatever. But a liar actually has an investment in the truth. That's what motivates their desire to obfuscate or conceal or hide the truth from the person that they're speaking with. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. And one of the problems with Donald Trump's lies is that often we all had legitimate reason to think not only does he not care about the difference between the truth and a lie, so maybe he's a bullshitter, but he very often doesn't know the difference between a truth and a lie, right? He's just shooting from the hip. 
And there might be a case to be made that the office of the president is different than the person who is speaking from that office. Whether or not Donald Trump himself knew that X was a lie, the office of the president knew or should have known, Mm. right? And so speaking in that official capacity, it still seems to me that you can make a case that he's lying. This is part of the thesis of Hannah Arendt in relation to totalitarianism, precisely this issue that there is a tearing down of truth as a value so that maybe to make a modification on the Costanzaism, I think Trump's position is if you believe it enough, then it becomes true. In that case, then it becomes really difficult to say, wait, that's a lie, because then the next step is to undercut, and this the office of the president did, so I agree with you, Lee, to undercut any possible criteria for what would count as true or a path to uncovering the truth. Yeah, and this was the great contribution, I think, of Stephen Colbert's notion of truthiness, right? (laughs) As he was like, it's not something that I know or believe, it's something that I feel, And feelings aren't true or false. You know, the gut has 10 times more nerve endings than the brain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if I might get a little current, we're recording this days after a school shooting. Now, the sad part of that is when I say if I could get a little current, this probably could have been two weeks ago or six weeks ago. Or two weeks in the future or six weeks in the future. Exactly. This one happened in Texas, and when the governor of Texas was asked about gun laws, he immediately pointed to Chicago. He said, look, Chicago has more stringent gun laws than we have here, and more people are shot on a weekend in Chicago than were shot in any school shooting in Texas. And our governor, J.B. Pritzker, called him a liar. And I'm not sure it was exactly a lie, but what Pritzker pointed out as the lie was that the guns that are in Chicago come from states that have lax gun laws, like Texas, like Indiana, which is right next door, and other states nearby. And so I was pretty shocked when Pritzker not only said that's not true, but said, and you know it's not true. I'm kind of appalled that both the governor of Texas, who's charged with executing the laws, and the attorney general, like the chief lawyer of the state, said, both of them, well, you know, murder's illegal, but people still do it. Oh my God, I hate that argument so much. As if the chief law enforcement officers of the state are now saying, well, laws don't matter. Yeah, That's I hate that argument so much Yeah, when people say we can't make this regulation because people will break it. And I'm like, well, then there's no point in making right. any laws about right, exactly. anything. That, that's the nature of a law because, you know, people will violate this moral precept. We want to deter them from doing that. Well, OK, so on that very point of a law, I want to go back to lying and come at this from the point of view of Immanuel Kant. So for Immanuel Kant, lying violates the universality formulation of the categorical imperative, the moral law. That formulation basically states act only in such a way that you could will the maximum of your action as a universal law. Now, For Kant, lying is always going to be not only immoral, but irrational, because if I were to will the maximum of my action when I'm lying as a universal law, 
everyone ought to lie or everyone ought to lie when they have good reasons to or whatever. Basically, I'd be willing a world in which truth makes no sense, that there's no distinction between truth and lying. I think this is the point that both of you were getting at earlier in our discussion of truthiness and the evacuation of truth from its proper place of import. So we do have this tradition that says the only way to make the world such that rational beings can operate in it socially, politically, morally, interpersonally, etc., is by proscribing lying. Yeah, and then we should probably say right away that a famous counter-argument that has been launched against that is, I'm living in Germany under the National Socialist Regime. My neighbors are Jewish. They asked me to hide them. The Nazis come to the door and say, do you have any Jewish people living here? And on Kant's account, I have to say, why, yes, I do. Here they are. So then the question is, is that really the moral thing to do, to tell the truth in that moment, or is lying at that moment the actual moral thing to do? I mean, if I could, I think that a lot of people get this wrong about Kant because, you know, he wrote this essay on the supposed right to lie for moral right. reasons. And so he uses this exact, I mean, not this exact example, because of course the Nazis hadn't come about yet, but there's an axe murderer at your door and he knocks on the door and asks if your friend's there. Kant's argument is that it may be the case that I have good prudential reasons to lie to the axe murderer. But those are non-moral reasons. Right. And just because they're good prudential reasons to lie in some case, and just because something good comes out of it, doesn't mean that I have a moral right to lie, that I would universalize that as a maxim for everyone. And this I find to be a almost entirely persuasive argument. And when I say almost, I mean, that's because I'm not convinced by the counter argument, because I think that, sure, if a Nazi came to my door and said, are there any Jews in your house? I would say no, but I would not then raise my children and say, you know what you ought to do? You ought to lie. And there's no way to raise children to say you ought to lie in these particular circumstances because these particular consequences will result from those lies because none of us can see the future. That's a totally irrational way to formulate moral laws. So I personally find the utilitarian argument for lying unpersuasive. That said, I lie all the time for not all the time. I lie a lot in my life. Not a lot. Okay, I lie in my life for for prudential reasons. Now I don't believe you at all. (laughs) And by the way, both of you guys look fantastic today. (laughs) Still don't believe you. (laughs) So what I find persuasive about the argument is not that it shows that Kant is wrong on whether or not lie is moral. I think where it puts pressure on Kant's philosophy is on the distinction that he makes, for example, in the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals that you were just pointing out, the strict distinction between prudence and morality. And it's also the case that in our actual lives, we often find ourselves in situations where we're confronted with a conflict of duties. And that, to me, is just evidently true, but that's not the place to be doing, I mean, on Kant's account, that's not the place to be doing moral theory. 
Right. The problem with going down the sort of argument that, well, in the case of the Nazis, it's okay to lie. And so let's not make lying as such immoral, because in that case, it's moral. I think the problem with that is then even Donald Trump would say that when I'm lying, it's prudential and therefore it's okay. And so I I see the problem with opening the door. Once you open the door, you have to let everyone in. This is where I think a lot of people in the snapshot versions that you get of this conflict between deontology and utilitarianism are wrong to say that when a Nazi comes to your door, you should lie to them and therefore lying is moral. I think even if a Nazi came to your door and you lied to them to save someone's life, you would not explain what happened as therefore lying is moral. You would explain what happened as saving someone's life is more important than telling the truth. To bring this back to where we started, one of the things that Kant's position on lying brings to the fore is, on the one hand, we could say, if we're not going to be full-blown Kantians... The only kind of Kantian to be. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You you can't half-ass it. You can't half-ass Kantianism. No. I'm a little Kant. I'm (laughs) Kantish. He's (laughs) Kant-curious. But if we're not going to go completely with Kant all the way, what I think is really important to take away from Kant is, to use the phrase I've been using over and over again, truth is a value. And if truth is a value, then we have a duty toward it. Can that duty come into conflict with other duties? Lee, I agree 100% with you that our duties do come into conflict, and then this is a moment where judgment has to take place. And so I really like, Lee, you're pointing out in the example we've been discussing, the claim is never lying is moral. The claim is, as you said, saving a life is moral. But that recognizes that there's a conflict here. And I have to make a judgment about which duty, as it were, is the higher one. Yeah, and I think that those conflicts don't always have to be as dire as saving someone's life. So I don't have human children, but if I did have human children and my child brought home a drawing that they did in art class, I would probably say that's really good, you you know, and put it on the refrigerator because there are more mundane reasons that the intent to deceive could be prudentially justified that don't involve saving a life, saving the world or anything like that, but just simply that the deception has no real harm to it. I just quickly scanned every nice thing Lee's ever said about me and I'm like, what? He said quickly because there weren't that many. <laughs> my, my example often is whenever someone gets their hair cut and, you know, question is, do you like it? Well, the deed's done. You can't put that hair back on. And so the only appropriate answer there is yes. But in the hindsight, what was gained by me being truthful to them in that moment? I didn't feel that my moral sensibility was at stake by telling them a, a lie. And it certainly didn't benefit them, especially if they felt like they liked it and they were really just fishing for a compliment. So, I mean, there's something to be said about the degrees, the positions or the reasons, the intentions behind not cleaving to the truth. I like that, Charles. And I think you might be adding an extra dimension to the definition that we've been working with so far. So it seems like we all agree that in order to tell a lie, you first have to be able to distinguish between the truth and a lie. Second, you have to be intending to deceive. And it sounds like what you're adding here is for some reason, towards some end, right? So if I'm lying to you and there are just no stakes in the lie whatsoever, 
then who cares? Or if I'm lying to you and the lie is for good reasons, like it's going to make you feel better or it's going to encourage you or whatever, the lie is justified. And then, of course, if I'm doing it for ends that are bad, then we would say that the lie is not justified. But it seems like it's not just the intention to deceive. It's also the intention for the lie to be situated in some larger project. And there, I think, begins the messiness that many, including Donald Trump, but we could throw in, what's that big penis with the bow tie? Um, Tucker Carlson. Carlson. (laughs) I knew immediately who he's talking about. No, when you said penis, I almost said Bezos because of the spaceship. uh, (laughs) um, So Trump and Tucker Carlson, I think they follow you, Lee, down that line. Then they make a leap, and I'm now making Donald Trump sound much smarter than he actually is, but they make a leap to that moment If you do it for a good purpose, then the lie is justified. And then the claim comes, yeah, but what counts as good, that is definitely up for grabs. And so therefore, now here's the leap, the truth is up for grabs. And then nothing counts as a lie. Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philo spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. I think we've established a fairly strong sense of the ways in which lies can live and exist, and also the ways in which truth can be affected. I think it's now time to move on to part two of this configuration, damned lies. And I want to see how we are distinguishing lies and what we're now calling a damned lie. So I think that damned lies are harmful lies. And I think the more harmful they are, the more damnable they are. There are obvious ways in which I could lie to either of you and only harm either of you. And I do think that that makes it a kind of damnable lie, but not as much as the big lies that harm society, that upset political structures, that put our species in danger. And so I'll just give you an example of One that is particularly relevant right now, as Rick mentioned, we're recording this just a few days after the Cobb Elementary School shooting in Texas. The lie that was first spoken by CEO of the National Rifle Association, Wayne LaPierre, the week after the Newtown school shootings, when he said, the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That is the damnedest lie that I can think of today. Well, I have a question about that. And by no means am I in any way supporting anything that Wayne LaPierre says. But could you argue that that formulation, which is clearly intended to obscure the truth about the dangers of circulating guns in our society, 
But that idea of a good guy with a gun stopping a bad guy with a gun, is that really a lie or is that a weird opinion that LaPierre has? Because have we established that it's not a truism? Yes, we have. It is the case that where there are more guns, there are more gun deaths. Good guys and bad guys, period. So it might be the case that Wayne LaPierre doesn't know that. But I'll go back to my argument about the distinction between Donald Trump, the president, and the office of the president. Wayne LaPierre has no business being the CEO of the National Rifle Association if he does not know that fact. But this introduces an element we really haven't touched on, namely that if lying is knowing that the truth is out there and available, and I say what is not true with the intention to deceive for a nefarious purpose. I think we also then have to consider, if not out and out lying, at least lying adjacent, the activity of not availing yourself of the truth when it's available so that you can continue to make claims and not be accused of lying because you could say, I didn't know. So I wasn't lying. I thought this was true. So I think, Lee, the reason I bring this up is because LaPierre should have availed himself of the information that is relevant to this. And the fact that he continues saying this, if his claim is, well, I don't know what the actual facts are, he ought to know that. In a way, he's using that willful ignorance as a legitimation of a lie. So that opens up an interesting avenue for me, which is what are the qualities that facilitate the damned lie? Can we begin to think about what are those qualities that allow for the damn lie to exist and get up and start running around the world? One thing might be a kind of believable ignorance about the truth. So an example I'm going to use now is a lot of the COVID misinformation that got spread at the beginning of the pandemic. Well, I don't know why I'm saying at the beginning of the pandemic. It's still being spread. There, there's a lot of things that we don't know. There's a lot of things we still don't know. We can't possibly know now what the long-term effects of vaccines are going to be. We can't possibly know now in the long term how effective masks were, how effective isolation protocols were, how effective even closing down the border for a few months was. So I think there we could say there's a plausible deniability that people can claim Nevertheless, working with the information that we do have, there were a lot of things out there that I'd be 100% comfortable calling a lie. A similar example, the PBS series Frontline, they did a three-part series on the role of big oil in United States society, government, and economy. I believe the second episode in that series was all about the ways in which the oil companies got together the moment that the human involvement in climate change was becoming obvious to scientists in order to find any scientist at all who will say either there's no connection between human actions and climate change or, and this was their ultimate tactic, well, there's a lot of uncertainty here and nobody can know what's what and let's not make drastic laws and so on. But they knew humans are having an impact on the global climate for the worse. And from their perspective, it was a lie. 
There was a really interesting moment in this where they got some of the ad executives and people from the marketing companies who were going out, finding these scientists and writing press releases. And to see this one guy caught in his own lie, it was almost literally a humana, 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 humana moment. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah. you are a damned liar. That was my exact yeah. thought. You are a damned liar. There are gauges that we have for this. I mean, I frequently get frustrated when people say, well, scientists disagree about climate change because I don't know what they're talking about when they talk about scientists. I mean, in any given year, there are thousands of peer-reviewed papers published in respectable scientific journals that confirm that humans contribute to climate change. And there are zero peer-reviewed scientific journals that publish papers that disconfirm that. I mean, you know, and I mean, obviously, we have to have a healthy kind of skepticism about scientific findings for exactly the reasons that I was saying earlier with COVID. There are things that we don't know, and there are things that we're speculating about that we may find later we were wrong about. But given the information that we have, I think now for anyone to say that there is a lot of scientific disagreement about the human contribution to climate change is, as you say, a damned lie. In many cases, people may not want to know the truth. And we can use smoking, right? Because it seems that we're going through the litany of public scandals. If you had to argue to somebody in 1960 that smoking three packs a of cigarettes is bad for you, and they're like, well, there's no scientific proof. I don't believe you. Well, that person clearly did not want to believe that. They just were too addicted to nicotine and tobacco to have a reason to give it up. So it seems to me there are moments where the truth is so overwhelming for either the individual or the society that that creates room to where the damn lie can take root and be much more pervasive in terms of its spread. And I think that's something we should think about. That's such a good example, Charles. And earlier I was talking about how the lie sort of stands as a veil or barrier between the person who's being lied to and the liar. And sometimes with damned lies, that veil becomes so thick, right, or that barrier becomes so impenetrable that despite the fact that the lie itself, if examined for even a half a second, is obviously untrue, it becomes hard to see past the lie. The example I'll give here is if wages rise, then prices also have to rise. Here's a basic fundamental principle of capitalism that people take to be true. It must be the case that if we raise wages, then we have to raise prices. And every single semester when I teach Marx and we talk about what surplus value is, what the difference between the cost of producing an item and what you can sell it for, the retail price and the production price, everything in between is surplus value, profit. And if you increase the production cost, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to raise the retail price. It just means that there'll be less profit, which, yeah, okay, if you're a you know small business just struggling to get by, maybe that means you go under. But when people talk about Amazon raising its prices or Kroger raising its prices or Shell Oil raising its prices – those people aren't going to go under because they raise their wages, right? They're just going to make, you know, a few billion dollars less in profit than they made before. And for the small businesses, if you are going to go under, if you don't pay your employees a living wage, then we all have good reasons to say you shouldn't right. be in business in the first place, right? Like you're basically a plantation. Basically, Lee, 
capitalism is a damned lie. <laughs> is a damned lie. Thank you. I don't know if we've ever mentioned that before on this, but I would like to go on the record as saying capitalism is a damned lie, and it involves a whole army of little lies. It tells us lies about human nature. It tells us lies about society. It tells us lies about politics, and it tells us lies about morality. But it is the air that we breathe, and it is very hard to step away from it, hold your nose for a second, and look at it. Well, and Marx, when looking at surplus value, tells the truth, and the truth is relatively simple, just following up from everything Lee just said. Namely, you are working part of your day for nothing. You are donating your labor to capital yet you're still working. So you're not getting paid for a big chunk of the time that you're working. That's the truth. Notice, though, companies will say in their advertising campaigns, well, we pass the savings on to you. Maybe they do, but that also allows them to then say in times when there's rising wages, well, we also pass the costs on to you. <laughs> <laughs> As we're talking about this, I'm realizing that I might need to backtrack a little bit from my earlier definition of lying, or at least make this distinction between lies and damned lies. Because it does seem like in damned lies, as we're talking about them, lies that are societal, maybe, or widespread, that the perpetuation of the damn lie often includes it being repeated by a lot of people who aren't intending right. to deceive anyone, even if they know it's not true, aren't trying to deceive anyone. And what's interesting in relation to Marx and in relation to capitalism is that in, for example, capital, Marx is never blaming an individual capitalist. And even though the capitalist right, is right. lying, who gets the most blame? The people he calls bourgeois political economists. And why? Because they ought to know better. They're the ones in the position yeah. to analyze the economy and so on. And so they're the ones who are lying because they ought to know better. It seems to me, and this is following up on Lee's point, that a definition of the damn lie versus the lie is that a damn lie is a lie with externalities. That sort of economic idea of a third party bearing the cost of the actions of a corporation. That's what a damn lie is. Someone else has to pay the price for that lie. Well, that's interesting. Then maybe I want to ask both of you about the interpersonal dimensions mm -hmm. of lying, because it also seems like a lie hurts the worst when it's told by someone the closest to you, when it's told by someone you trust. So it doesn't have to involve these like society-wide effect or large corporations or governmental entities spreading damned lies. But in our actual interpersonal experience, it seems like the most damnable lies are the ones that come from the people closest to you. I think what going to the personal level exposes maybe even about lies in general that we haven't looked at. And this might be at the heart of your distinction, Lee, between the president and the office of the president, that when a friend lies to me, this is on the basis of an almost unquestioned, almost rock solid foundation of fundamental trust at the deepest level. The lie then is not just deceiving me, but the lie also then completely shatters that platform of trust that was the basis of friendship. 
we're going back to the Kantian idea of what's prudential. And we talked about this. There are some lies that one can tell a friend that actually may not be damaging and in a sense at a certain moment based on the circumstance can actually be beneficial to that person. So you have someone who is nervous about going back out into public for whatever reasons and you say, no, no. This looks better than you think it is. And that may give the person the courage to go back out and engage in what they were once fearful of engaging in. So we may want to think about judgment again. What is the lie? What is the nature of the lie? What effect does it have? And what is the intent in terms of lying to that friend or that close relation? I mean, that's interesting because, you know, Rick said that one of the things about being lied to by someone you trust is that it shatters the relationship completely. And of course, most times it doesn't shatter it completely. When we're in that one-on-one interpersonal relationship, it hurts and it does some damage, but there's the possibility that it could be mended. There's a possibility that I can say, I made a bad judgment there. I shouldn't have lied. I'm sorry. And there's the possibility that you can say, I forgive you. We need to reevaluate you know, our relationship and work forward. So I think that those possibilities are still open in that one-on-one or small group environment. That is not available in what we were earlier calling damned lies, these society-wide lies, because there's no one liar. There's no one person to say they're sorry. There's no one person to say, actually, this was the truth. There's no one person who can forgive you for lying or can call you out on lying because the lie is so dispersed. It's so system-wide that that's what makes it damnable. So two things. One is I want to actually insist on what I said. I think that the lie does shatter the friendship. That doesn't mean that it can't be rebuilt, but I think that Mm. it's Mm. not going to be the same friendship. It'll be a different friendship. It could be every bit as strong or close, but I think the lie does shatter what was and whether it can be built again is a different story. I think for me, and maybe this in the end gets to a quibble with words, but I think something's a damn lie much more if I can point to the liar. Mm. I think what I would point to and say that's a damned lie is based on the consequences of it, not on whether the whole society or social structures are doing the lying, but what is the impact of the lie? So to say that humans have no impact on climate change is a catastrophic lie. It's of global import. Capitalism is a catastrophic lie. Or also to pick up Charles Smoking example, I would call it a damn lie if it is of such an epic proportion. Yeah, I think I completely agree with that. I mean, it's interesting because it then seems like damned lies have to be catastrophic, Mm. which is an interesting parallel because normally I think, maybe it's just me, but normally I think when we think about damnable, it has more of a moral, even religious ring to it. But when we think about something being catastrophic, that seems more scientific. Is that a good way to say it? Yeah, we'll call that the Irwin Allen lie, if you will. What's that? Sorry, he was a producer of those famous disaster movies of the 70s, like Inferno, like The Burning Buildings or Earthquake. Those movies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> An Irwin Allen lie. It's interesting that rarely outside of a court of law is lying a punishable offense. And so we have corporations that can tell these catastrophic Irwin Allen lies. 
We know that the fossil fuel industry consistently lied and used all these mechanisms to deceive the public for 40 going on 50 years. And yet there doesn't seem to be anything legally that can be done about that and including the behavior of politicians. We know Trump was lying. We cannot punish him for lying because of the circumstance under which he was lying. So can we talk about the fact that the catastrophic lie has such an effect on the society and there's damn little that we seem to be able to do? I mean, the one counterexample, which I think supports your point, Charles, is the tobacco industry. So it seemed like the settlement that they made with all 50 states was in anticipation of the fact that they were going to be punished for lying. They weren't being punished for producing a product that hurt people and killed people. They were being punished for knowingly producing a product that hurt people and killed people and not telling the people. But since that's such a rare example, I think you're right. That is almost never a punishable offense. And I know I raised this example on the podcast before, but in the old Ali McBeal show, there was a guy, I forget his character's name. He was one of the main guys in the law firm, but he would do something to hurt someone or even lie to people. And then when it was pointed out, he would just say, oh, bygones. <laughs> it's interesting when we think about how lies are punished outside of the courtroom, outside of being charged with perjury and being fined or having to spend time in jail. Those punishments are entirely community punishments, social mm. punishments, and often they are just as unreliable and mercurial as any other kinds of social judgments. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. We're covering a lot of ground in terms of what lies are, what damn lies are, the effects, and, and the seemingly impossibility of large-scale corporations to be held accountable for their lies. But it seems to me that we've entered a dangerous point here in the United States where the time-honored forms of objective truth are now being rejected. And what I'm saying is I think statistics now were once they were seen as valuable sources of truth now are coming into ill repute or disrepute. So how can we think about statistics along this continuum of lies, damn lies, catastrophic lies, and now statistics? Well, it is interesting that Mark Twain includes statistics <laughs> as one of the three kinds of lies. <laughs> it's an odd choice until you start looking at the ways statistics are used. The pull that they have on us when we're trying to judge whether or not something is true or not. I want to give an example again here of a way that statistics are used to lie. So we are currently in the midst of who knows what wave mm. of COVID, fourth, fifth, sixth, no way to really tell. But about a month ago, a month ago from when we're recording this, so late April, the CDC decided they were going to start measuring the risk of communities, not by transmission rate, but by hospitalization rates. 
basically not how at risk are you for getting COVID or spreading COVID, but really just, you know, how many hospital beds are there left? And overnight, the map of high risk areas in the United States went from red to green. Now, this is a incredibly unuseful map that is based on entirely true statistics. I mean, what they're measuring is hospitalization capacities and whether or not a community is at risk of overwhelming their hospitals. The problem here is the way the CDC has narrated this image, this chart, and these statistics as it's been putting this information out is still in the narrative of risk assessment. And these statistics are not useful in determining your personal or your community risk assessment. By the time your risk or your community's risk is very high and the hospitals start to be overwhelmed, these stats are totally useless. And the stats that we actually did need that we were using about transmission and positive cases, we're not even looking at anymore. So I think that statistics are another way of lying. And I think that we've seen this over the last six to eight months from the CDC is the CDC is trying to find any statistics that it can find to let the economy be as open as it can possibly be. What I think is interesting about statistics is that as a field, it developed in response to a terrain in which there is a truth out there, but either because of its complexity or the massness of it or variables that we can't calculate, we can't get directly to that truth. And so statistics are a way to get a kind of approximation, get a picture of this truth that we can't otherwise discover. But at the same time, that means that it always operates at some distance from the truth and therefore can often be a lie. And I think that's sort of inherent in the nature of statistics. But it seems to me that we can think about the rise of statistics along with the rise of modern social science disciplines. Sure, right? definitely. And trying yeah. to find a way to convey certain information to a large body of people. The stat that Lee shared with us earlier about what the CDC is doing in terms of measuring the effect of COVID, moving from transmission rates to hospitalization rates, that's not untrue in terms of thinking about how severe the effect COVID is having on the society. But another way of thinking that can be equally valid, depending on the question you're asking, and equally true. Yeah, I mean, that's the tough part, though, right? If I showed you a map of communities that statistically have high transmission rates, and I show you a different map of communities that statistically have high hospitalization rates, I am showing you two different maps that are useful for risk assessment. But they're measuring two completely different things. And I think the problem is, is that when we say all of these statistics are showing the same thing, when we can see with our own eyes that one of the maps is green and one of the maps is red, that's where it gets tricky. And I don't know if this is just me, but I feel like the average American pretty frequently hears dramatically contrary statistics about the same phenomenon every day. And so it starts to be just kind of a placeholder for this is my opinion, right? I say 85% of Americans agree that X. And so X must be true. But also there's a way in which to go back to a point you made in your rant, Lee, you said 85% I heard last night, 90% of Americans support some restrictions on gun ownership, the types of guns that can be owned, background checks, I think those are three of the main pillars. 
At the same time, I could slightly alter what I'm counting and say something like 65% of Americans are opposed to removing the right to bear arms. Both of those could be true at the same time. And if I'm not aware of how to read the numbers, read the questions, see, as you were saying, Lee, what exactly is being measured and why this rather than something else, I think then statistics often are not only lies, but they're damn lies. You made the point I was just going to make. I think that statistics is how lies become damned lies. There was somebody <laughs> who did that study who put those statistics together and may have the intention to deceive with those statistics, but they become damned lies, society-wide lies, when they get spread as a larger narrative that is forwarding some project that, as Rick said in the second segment, has catastrophic consequences. The green map, and I think as much of a damn lie as statistics are, the visualization aids are even more liars. Mm -hmm. But the green map gives us a green light and go out and rip off those masks. To damned pie charts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> This brings us back to an earlier point. And I agree, statistics can be lies and can lead to Erwin Allen lies. I agree with that completely. I'm not sure inherently statistics are lies. I think they may just be limited ways of getting at the truth. But in specifically the case of COVID spread and whether or not to mask and whatever policies, there's a willful ignorance on the part of many in the population. There are a lot of people who are just tired and frustrated and exhausted by the various policies and who are more than happy to believe whatever stats or whatever numbers or whatever visualizations that the CDC put out there for them because they just want an excuse to go back to what they already want to do. Yeah. And I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure that is the exact context in which Mark Twain decided to include statistics. We use statistics as a way of forwarding some project for which the lie needs to be lended credence. And since we're not going to say, you know, the Pope says it, or my priest says it, or the Oracle at Delphi says it, we're going to say, here are the statistics, right? The statisticians say it. Mm. Well, I heard the Oracle at Delphi had a 33% chance of accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, one out of three ain't bad if you really want to decide if you're going to sacrifice that hostage or not. <laughs> but if I could get back to Rick's point earlier about statistics requiring too much work on the part of the person reading the statistics in order to interpret them, I do think this is a real problem. And sorry to keep pounding on this CDC map, but if I put out a map that says community transmission statistics and the map is colored according to hospitalization statistics. So you look at that and you say 80% of the country is not currently in a high transmission area. You've just misunderstood the statistics that you've looked at. You've looked at the title of the image and you've said, okay, what this image is showing me is where there are high transmission areas. That's just not what's being shown there. And I think that there is a kind of parallel between this and what we see on a much more common conversational level. And I, for example, see in my classes every day when people say something like 85% of Americans believe X, what is heard is not 85% of Americans believe X to be true, but X right. is true. I think you're right. Statistics get people either to just hear X as true 
or to say, well, maybe I should believe that too, because everyone else does. Going back to our conversation about algorithms a few weeks ago, I think that we need audits of these kinds of things to make sure that they're not misrepresenting the phenomenon that they're allegedly evaluating. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, even statisticians, and most obviously in this example that I'm giving about the CDC maps, even statisticians are making choices about the data that they're measuring and the data that they're not measuring. And if we don't know what's being measured and what's not being measured and what the correlation is between that and the phenomena that's being explained, then they might as well just give us pictures of Mickey Mouse and color the ears in different ways. And we'll be just as informed as we were with the CDC maps. Just as informed and more entertained. Mickey says mask up. If you live in my left ear, you should wear a mask. <laughs> Well, we've made another trip around the podcast sun here at Hotel Bar Sessions, and this episode is our last of season four. As usual, we're going to take a short break to detox, but Charles, Rick, and I will be back in two weeks with season five. We've got a great lineup of topics and guests for next season, so please be sure to tune back in when we return. In the meantime, check out our Afterthought series on Hotel Bar Sessions' YouTube channel, Give us a rating and a comment on whatever podcast streaming service you use. And be sure to follow us and interact with us on Twitter and Facebook. On behalf of all three of us here at the Hotel Bar, thank you so much for listening. Cheers, y'all. So unfortunately, Noelle has turned the lights on. We're standing in the truth. She was told us that our conversation was entertaining. That's a damn lie. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have to get out of here. But before we do, I just want to remind our listeners that we do have a Patreon page and we could really use your support. You can go to patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. And if you are a visual listener, look for us on YouTube at Hotel Bar Sessions. All right, you guys, I have called a cab. Who's riding with me? I don't me? believe you. <laughs> what are my chances of getting home? 100%. <laughs> All right, I'm riding. <laughs> Good night, guys. Shotgun. <laughs> <laughs>